Hey everybody out there, how you doing? Uh, it's Dan Schwester from The Overrun. I'm Anna Ryan. I'm Jess Mastercola. I'm Kevin Mazza. I'm Mike DiFilippo. I almost forgot my last name. And today uh, we're going to uh, keep on our uh, mental health uh, series. We're going to talk a little bit more about this uh, topic. It's uh, it's something that we like to go back to and uh, we think it's probably one of the underutilized things that we talk about. So, um, Anna? Yes. Oh, it's me. Okay. Um, so... As far as mental health goes, we have we've already talked about how the stigma of, you know, having a mental issue or having a mental trauma or illness is something that kind of follows us around. But we haven't actually talked about how we provide support for ourselves or if we have support provided for us. So kind of round robin around the table when you were a new medic, because uh, everyone here was new at one point or another. Um, did you feel that the stressors of the job kind of affected you differently than your EMT experience? Or was this something that you thought was, you know, kind of run of the mill? Jess. Okay. So I'm obviously not a medic. However, when I became a new nurse. Sorry. Um, no, it's, it's cool. It's cool. It's cool. It was, no it was way different. Um, mostly because for me, it was way different because you have now instead of one patient at a time, I now have five or six at a time. And I feel like the stressors aren't necessarily, you don't get to see these people in these states in their own home. Now they're in my controlled environment and I'm supposed to be taking care of them. And the stressors are less environmental and more, this person's really sick and now I have to make them better. And I am the end all be all because now they're in the hospital and there's nowhere else for them to go from here other than <laughs> ICU. And they're not going to ICU until they're stabilized. And the family is coming in and saying, you know, you know, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to get them better. Why aren't they getting better? And that's the stressful, for, the stressful part. Not so much, not so much like the oh my gosh, we're in the field and this person's house is disgusting and they're lying on the floor dying, but I really don't want to kneel down because it's kind of gross and like the family's freaking out and running around. Like no, here it's controlled, but you are kind of the last stop, and that's pretty stressful, right? Like, I feel like that's hard. I think for me, um, transitioning from medic from EMT wasn't too big of a leap. The stressors only became more about, like, patients, actual care bothering me because there was a whole – I had a whole lot more responsibility now. Mm -hmm. I had a whole toolbox full of medications, um, tools for uh, looking at different illnesses. Like, I went from just, like, this person's sick, let's go to the hospital – and dropping up as EMT to having a load of responsibility as a paramedic because, you know, it's like when you're, oh, man, I need an adult, I need an adult. Like, you're the adult now. It's yeah. time, it's suck it up. Like, it's time mm -hmm. to buckle up and go. So <clears throat> the stressors definitely affect me different as a paramedic because an EMT, I just kind of, frankly, I worked as a transport EMT um, with some 911 experience. But mostly just kind of go home at the end of the day and not think about it. As a medic, I went home and I thought about it a lot. Like, mm -hmm. what could I have done better? Um, especially a call that did not go our way, and you kind of kick yourself for a little bit. But it's it, it's it's definitely a whole different animal going from basic life support to advanced life support. I would have to echo a lot of what Kevin said. Um, I think the stressors of the job that affected me most was just you're the one everyone turns to for an answer. Mm -hmm. And even if the scene is chaotic, everybody, police, fire, EMTs, patients family members looks to you to one control the scene and two to at least look like you have an idea of what's going on and i think that's what just got to me the most 
um, probably I think within the first month because that's when I had a really bad job. And I just remember specifically on that one, I froze looking at the life pack and thinking like, what the hell is going on? And that never <laughs> happened to me ever before. And I just remember I literally had to like close my eyes, take a breath in and then like reconstitute myself. So pretty much what Kevin said, just the amount of responsibility that's placed on you as you transition in a uh, very stark difference than when I was an EMT. Yeah, I thought the stakes were higher. I think that was the biggest thing. You know, now now you have a little bit more responsibility and, you know, now I'm in the back of the truck and there's two or three, you know, EMTs looking at me like with expectant faces like, okay, do this, you know. Um, you know, and the and and the realization that, you know, you were it. This was it was on you. There was nobody else to really blame at that point. On the other hand, you know, I, I, it's a stressor, but I think it, it was also, I kind of looked at it as I was, I was excited for that. I think I wanted it. You know, it was an opportunity to do more. It was an opportunity to, to push the envelope. So I, I, I didn't look at it. I, I guess I don't know if I looked at it the same way or I balanced it out. Okay. So there's like a general kind of consensus of like, you know, at one point or another, we had trained to be up to this point. And we kind of accepted the responsibility, even if it wasn't, you know, what we expected. We still kind of walked away with something, knowing that we had learned something. And even if it was, if it was stressful, it is what it is. Yes? Right. Yeah, I'd agree. So if this was something that affected you on a permanent level, do you think you would have been supported by where you work? <laughs> <laughs> That's never a good sign. Um, okay. So I think there is pretty marked difference between when I became an ENT and the support system that was there and now that I'm a nurse in a hospital that's not a large system but a decent enough size system I feel like if something bad happens as an EMT, my support system was oh well let's just go get some coffee you'll be good it's all right like you know why don't you just uh like you can take the rest of the day off like you got a day off you got coffee? <laughs> Somebody uh, talk to you? No, this is more um, like this is when I was brand brand new, like in my volunteer days. Oh, okay. and that I uh, could take a day off. Oh, and then when I became uh, when I had my first paid job, nine one one paid job, and I had my first rough call, it was like okay, well, on to the next call. Like you didn't, there was nothing. There was mm -hmm. no one there saying, "Hey, are you good? Like, do you need a moment? Do you need?" 30 minutes to collect yourself like do you need someone to talk to nothing and now transitioning from there to now being in the hospital we we first of all all of us if there's a sick patient there's more than just one nurse like we're all combining our efforts and helping out that specific nurse because it's, <coughs> it's her patient but we're all going to help because this person's sick and at the end of the day when that person finally goes up to icu where they're finally stable enough like everyone kind of convenes at the nurse's station we all debrief a little bit and if we need something farther past there, like our manager is very good about saying, hey, we're going to have on this day a debriefing for everyone involved that includes security, the nurses down here, the physicians, the nurses and physicians upstairs where the patient went to. And we have those for really like intense incidents. Like we had a child drowning about a month ago and there was a set day that everyone could either come in or call in and it was open to everyone that was involved in that care like registration included, security, all that. So I think there's a huge difference 
like between yeah, what you're talking about doesn't exist it, you know, it right. doesn't happen it doesn't oh, yeah, happen that's a fantasy in, world in wow. ems it just doesn't happen yeah no i mean i've had uh i've had calls involving like pediatric drownings myself and the most i got was i got a phone call from the manager who said hey yo you good and yeah it doesn't matter what your answer was like okay great because so, uh, uh, I don't got, have I don't have coverage for it. I got to hold you for four hours. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's, there's four more. Calls yeah, there's pending. call there's calls holding. So, yeah, no, yeah. yeah. You, you guys done transferring care is a call holding, and so you don't even have a minute. Let's actually talk about that then. What is it that suffered on your next call? I wasn't thinking about that call. I wasn't thinking about the call I was on. I was thinking about the last one still. Right. So I didn't even have a chance. Not maybe I didn't need like a critical stress debriefing, but I just needed to debrief and talk about what just happened with somebody, not a hey next one's lined up let's go. Like, I might need a timeout or a break or <clears throat> to talk to somebody who wasn't there. Just like, hey, I got to tell me I did a good job. Tell me nothing I could have done. Tell me, hey, good, you know, good effort, good job. That's the way it goes. Like, mm-hmm. just to talk to somebody who wasn't my partner, who was just there next to me and might might be suffering the same way I am. Um, rather than just a, a, a cursory phone call from my manager just to make sure I can get the truck back in service. Right. Mm-hmm. Michael. So I had a really, really bad job when I was working only for about four weeks as a brand new medic with my partner at the time. And um, I told her I I did horrible with it um, to the point that her husband called me uh, at night to see if I was doing okay. And then the next day management called me to make sure I was doing okay. Um, but that was about the extent of it. And I don't recall them ever asking if I needed help or anything like that. And I, I didn't at the time, it was just a, just a rough job. Um, but I don't remember there being much emphasis on mental health outside of a couple of people asking, are you okay? Right. And I don't know if the answer would have changed on their part if I said no. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, yeah, I don't know. There's no actual like policy or procedure in place mm-hmm. where someone says no and you have to do something. Right. For especially them. at an organization that's a tertiary, not directly attached to a hospital right. type thing that may not have those resources readily available. It's kind of like when somebody says like, oh, you know, oh, my grandmother died. And like, oh, is there anything I can do for you? Just ask like, yeah, I'm going to be like at her funeral tomorrow. You might mow my lawn. They're not going to come mow your lawn. They're not no. going to do anything you ask. They're just... No. They're asking because they have to it's ask. It's a nicety. It, right. It's a it's a platitude. Right. So they could say, well, we asked. We care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of have a real negative thing on this is that I don't think any place I ever worked really handled this effectively. Um, I, re- you know, I remember coding kids and, you know, some really, really ridiculously crazy calls and, you know, in pretty much every aspect of emergency services. And it was like, OK, yeah, let's go back. I mean, at best, it was like, eh, well, that was pretty wild, huh? And at worst, it was oh cool. Let's uh, let's go hit the bar and just go get snockered and right. be done with it. you know because that's how people because that's how <laughs> well that's how you coped with it yeah. and, and you know you, I'm I'm almost a different generation and you know the the guy the the people that I came up with that's how they dealt with it because that's how they were taught to deal with it mm-hmm. and it was a really prevalent thing. It's going away and I think it should. Um, but it was, it was not pleasant. Yeah. So without those coping mechanisms, without someone to come in and actually act on your behalf, if you had said no, was there a time in anybody around the table, open outcry, whatever it is that you considered self-harm or suicide and what is it that stopped you? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I've definitely been there and I don't say there's anything specific that 
stopped me. It was more, I kind of dwelled in it and it happened to pass. Like nothing, no one came swooping in mm-hmm. to and notice that I wasn't myself. And there was no one that intervened and said, oh, I'm going to get you help. Like I laid in bed for like a week and eventually it passed enough where I was able to go up and shower and feel okay. And then in the following months, I luckily had enough of a support system to make me get back to myself. But they, those people didn't know that was what I was thinking. Right. It was more internal and I happened to get through it because I just happened. No, to. you couldn't dare tell them. No, you can't. Cause if you tell them I would have ended up in a hospital. On right. A and that's always for some reason, that's a, always the, the first reaction to this is that right. I feel bad. I feel I've gotten to the point where I'm numb enough that I want to, I want to feel anything. Mm-hmm. So I have to involve myself in a, in a hospital situation. That's one of the big stigma points is that, mm-hmm. You know, you're going to be put away for life. And the, I think the issue with that was if I had ended up in that situation, this was actually in the throes of me being in nursing school. Mm-hmm. I would have been behind in nursing school because I would have had to be out for the rest of the semester if that had happened. So it's life altering because, first of all, it's a huge stigma. And second of all, like it's not something that workplace or school is going to consider a valid excuse like, I, I just feel like if I had said, well, I have to go to an inpatient psych unit, they were, they probably would have, I, I would have been, I would not have been surprised if they had let me go from the program. Oh, I, yeah, I could see that. You know? Simply for, for nothing issue. else. They, could, they, they don't know what to do. And mm-hmm. they're just, they, mm-hmm. and then the liability demon comes up and everybody starts getting yep. worried about, well, what if? And, and even, what if if? The, even if that's not the case, the stigma exists. So now you're yeah. quiet because you don't want to leave nursing school, but... You also can barely deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was hard. I I don't think at any point I thought to myself specifically to end my life, but there were were self-harm. Some people might think, you know, you cut yourself or something like that, but self-harm is any action you do that's detrimental to your physical Mm well-being, whether that is drugs, alcohol, what have you. Um, There were a few times where I've had calls that stuck with me for so long that I couldn't stop thinking about them. I considered ways to stop thinking about them i didn't want to die that was for sure but like if if my action resulted in my death i don't think i would have cared um eventually got help i started talking to started with coworkers, like hey how would you have handled this and you know you just kind of try to smile through it all and you just try your best not to let anybody know you're in trouble because yeah the fear is you're going to get pulled from the truck you're going to get fired you're going to have there's the stigma that comes with being depressed and whether that depression is a result of a job um, an underlying medical condition you didn't know about which was my case um, the the thing is you have to realize it's going on and you have to get help and you have to because the consequences of not getting help are far worse than being than the stigma of actually getting help so yeah I've considered self-harm um, as a way to kind of make like you know the, the thoughts go away mm-hmm. but Thankfully, I never acted on it or anything like that because I eventually got help, got a therapy, medication, appropriate medication, and um, didn't try to resolve the issue myself just by, oh, I can get through this. I'm tough. You know, someone said, suck it up. It wasn't that bad of a job. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy to talk about, and this isn't going to be easy to listen to for a lot of people, but if you're having these thoughts or feelings, talk to someone, anyone, mm-hmm. anyone, mm-hmm. and start the process of healing. And I'd like to point out real quick, it 
isn't necessarily one instance in your career then all of a sudden you're going to feel this way these things build up and then you might get to this point and not understand why you're feeling this way right that's a, that's a completely true because it wasn't any one it was one instant that was basically the straw that broke the, broke the camel's back but mm-hmm. you think about that one and then you think about one you've thought about before mm-hmm. and it just kind of builds up and you get into this you know anxiety spiral that you can't get out of so you you think about every job, every face, every patient that you've lost or didn't feel like you've done right by. And it just kind of like it burdens you and it takes you to a real dark place and you do anything to make that stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's there's this concept then about how to how to institute like your own coping mechanisms. But so the, the concept is basically uh, like a self-care thing. And the general, the generalization of self-care comes out to be like, I'm going to like really spend some time with myself and like, I'm going to like watch like a Netflix series and maybe I'll do a facial. <laughs> and it's That's not a bad idea though. I mean, I mean it's, it's relaxing. It works. It's nice. It works to an extent. It does. Yeah. But if this is something that becomes. It is a band-aid. Right. If it's superficial, what do you do that's more practical? If you're in a stressful situation, what are your coping mechanisms essentially? Besides, no, it's going to be cake, isn't it? That's <laughs> Uh, I was going to say food, which is half joking, half not joking. Um, you know, I, I think coping mechanisms serve a place to recenter yourself if you feel like you're absolutely going to lose it. Um, but I do think at a certain point, if you do feel like you're going to lose it, you should go seek help. Sure. Um, I don't know. I feel like when Kevin and I were partners, I feel like sometimes it would be safe to say food, milkshakes, like all joking aside. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. After a rough job, we, we got a milkshake to, you know, congratulate ourselves on doing well. <laughs> but uh, blue slushies for winners. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but food is it, it's a viable thing because someone yeah. who's in a traumatic situation or someone who's, uh, you know, having an anxiety attack or something like that, their sympathetic nervous system is kicked up into hyperdrive. Right? Especially something so, sweet, sugary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You yeah. eat something, you counteract that hyperactivity and now you're a little bit more grounded, which is exactly what we want you to do anyway. You know, not that you should be like, you know, the... You're the, advocating for milkshakes. I am. Just. Always. It's over. Always milkshakes. I'm going yeah, to the milkshakes. Hurt, they hurt my tummy. No. Lactose free. I think for me, um, my self-care was, it was probably not a very efficient self-care. It was going home, not talking to anybody because I was pretty much spent after mm-hmm. my shifts and I didn't want to talk to anybody and I would play video games and then I'd go to sleep. Like, I just didn't want human interaction. After yeah, that life. was me. That's yeah. mostly me. I would just I, literally just Because human interaction actually made it worse for me. Yeah. Having actually, to talk yeah. to someone else. I mean, you're just like, God, I just don't yeah. want to. I just discuss. don't want to like, deal with people. I don't want to deal with it. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. Just let me go be and myself. And I'm still like that. You can ask Yeah, no, I think, I think that's completely viable. That mm-hmm. maybe your initial reaction, that's your way of decompressing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The way to digest everything that just happened to you. But at some point, if that doesn't work, there has to be a next step. There has to yeah. be a plan B or, you know, the next logical step. Right. So let's talk about the, the self-care being a, a multifaceted approach. Right. If we have, you know, one thing that we know is going to work for us in the moment, but that's not working. Is it okay for us to consider this as something that we can go like a couple levels deep and have like other plans in place? Or do we have to jump right to therapy? I don't know if most people realize they're doing self-care when they're doing self-care. Okay. Yeah. Like, I don't realize, I know this sounds crazy, but I don't realize, like, if I'm feeling down that I'm overeating until I've overate. Yeah. Okay. And I'm like, oh, I'm way mm. too full. Or I don't realize that, like, I spent the last two days in my house just playing video games and watching TV until I realized, like, I haven't gone outside in two days. Mm. So I don't know if people realize they're in a self-care milieu when they're in it 
milieu. Get it. Ten dollar words. Um, so I, I don't know if it would be as easy to say like to have a plan for self care outside of maybe setting something up like once you recognize you were on a tough job or once you recognize that you had a rough job that's bothering you to say maybe I should now execute X Y Z to try and make myself feel better. Yeah. But healthy things like going to exercise or right. go out for a walk something like that so is that a matter of of emotional intelligence then is that something that we don't give ourselves enough credit for i think emotional intelligence and also part of the culture of the field i think a lot of people would like to say that co-workers and uh major people in the field would just tell you that there is no tough thing that requires uh therapy or self-care like it's just stuff you have to deal with so I think to realize that would be kind of a novel idea in EMS. Yeah. Mm. I just feel like um, we've kind of had some breakthroughs as far as the military where people come back from being deployed. And I feel like it's there's much more awareness now about PTSD and anxiety and depression with the people who are, you know, now veterans. And I think that EMS is behind, like, they've kind of dropped the ball on that. I feel like... PTSD, anxiety, depression can manifest from any kind of traumatic situation, not just a warfare zone. Mm -hmm. And traumatic situations don't always have to be guts and gore. Like I had my one of my most traumatic calls personally, like it didn't even look crazy. It was just hard for me emotionally. So like recognizing it in the first place is where we have to start. I think that comes right. back to your emotional intelligence. Right. You have to be smart enough to know that there is a problem going on. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not smart enough because I'm pretty, I like to think I'm pretty smart. Um, sure <laughs> you do. Maybe it's aware. <laughs> Are you I aware? Think it's more sure you do. <laughs> you have to be able to admit it's to awful. yourself that there's a problem. Well, I mean, emotional intelligence isn't like being you smart. It's saying, just like emotionally wherewith, emotional wherewithal yeah. is maybe a better term. Emotional and awareness and honesty. Yes, mm-hmm. and you have to be honest with yourself because if, if you haven't gotten to the place where you recognize you need help, it doesn't matter what other people recognize in that in you. No, and you're not going to listen. Right, you're right. not going to listen. There were times like, like, you know, my like Jen, my wife, would be like, you are really not in a good spot. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm fine. What do you mean? Like, <laughs> don't be, to, don't, yeah, don't that's, tell that's me your what first, to do my life. That's your first response to everything. Yeah, just because I'm doing this or just because I'm doing this or just because I'm doing four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then you yeah. realize, uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I am. Okay, a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, you you have to be able to pick that up and have to be able to, to un, you know, to understand that and mm-hmm. listen. And it's hard. It's not easy. So what about when we start to feel that taking care of ourselves is something we don't deserve or something that we don't, it's, it's too much. So even if we don't know that we're doing self-care, it's the fact that I haven't gotten out of bed in three days and I don't deserve to shower because I'm just not a worthy person anymore. Oh, that's a problem. That's well, it's also gross, but <laughs> <laughs> it's also gross. I think gross. that's yeah. I think that's it's hard for the person that's in that situation to realize that that's even an issue, mm-hmm. um, because that's kind of the classic depression scenario, right? Like yeah. you're stuck in this fog. You don't have any motivation to do things. You're feeling hopeless and helpless, and you don't always realize that there's something wrong with you or you do think that there's something wrong with you. You just don't deserve to get treated for it. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I don't even think the onus is on that individual to push themselves to help. I think that's for other people to realize that like your partner at work should realize, Hey, like 
you freaking smell, dude. Like, <laughs> yeah. like when's the last time you showered? Are you reek of alcohol? Like, yeah. were you or you haven't yesterday? eaten? Or yeah, or you lost a lot of weight? Are you trying? No, right. you're not. I just haven't been eating. Like, do you need mm-hmm. to go talk so to then somebody? So that brings us like, to, to the next point: is that is self care something you have to do individually? Yeah. No. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. controversy. I think it depends on the person. Um, Rochambeau. <laughs> One, two, <three>. yeah. <laughs> like for me, my self care is don't talk to me. Go don't away. Touch me. Don't bother me. If we're in the same room as me, that's fine. But don't address me because go away. Go leave me alone. I'm right. doing my thing. I believe once before I've stated that just may in fact be a cat. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> she wants to be pet when she's pet. That's it. Exactly. Only when she wants it. Only, Only when, when I want it. Because if you try <laughs> to come anywhere near me when I'm in my self-care zone, I will probably bite your head off. Uh-huh. Yeah. So going back to Dan and yeah. Mike, <laughs> now I'm but afraid. That's the thing. So then Dan, why is it not something that involves someone else? Because in the early, I, I, let me let me modify my statement. Okay. In the early stages, it has to be you. I was like, don't and go you, back on it. And you have on. to have the responsibility of learning. We have the same answer what, now. What okay. those <laughs> issues are. <laughs> oh, jeez, sorry. But um, there comes a point where somebody's going to have to bring it bring it to your attention, mm-hmm. and then you you should have the wherewithal to be like uh oh but yeah. in the beginning it's got to be you and that's something that like i've had to work on is like just recognizing the situations where you know that you're going to slide mm-hmm. and just it's it's like anticipating a skid in a car you know you got to turn into the skid a little bit and okay you know i i got to realize you know one of the one of the things that i've really tried to improve on is recognizing the stressful environment recognizing you know, oh my God, you know, like I'll be honest, I've come through a period in the last two or three months at my, you know, my place where it has been just a stressful environment and recognizing that has really helped to cope. Now it hasn't been perfect. Right. Haven't done it, haven't done it, you know, a plus work here, but I'm pulling a solid B I think. And you know, that's okay. Is that all right? Yeah. Cause it would have been a D if I didn't recognize it, well, or an is, a, F. is A the only thing that we have to shoot for? No, no. I no, think passing. I think it's, totally think it's pass fail. I think you have to pass. Okay. I said, you know, and you know, the fact that I haven't screamed at people, I haven't bitten people's heads off, and I, you know, dealing with stuff at work, you know, problems at work because I'm not handling things mm-hmm. well or I can't think. Um, you know, those are those are major issues. You can get through without that. Yeah, you still might not feel great. You still may come home, put your head in the shower, and just like, but that's okay. Yeah, and, and you also, have to understand that that's okay. And that's a, that's also a self care step. Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. that you know if you need your time in the shower to put your head down and just grunt it out, you do what you got to do. Yeah. But as long as you've made it through without biting someone's head off, then maybe that's a passable day. Yeah. Did you make it through without damaging your career? You know, or did you make it through or the rest of your life. damaging your reputation the rest of your life? Any of the really bad things, if you get, I think if you get through them, I think you're doing okay. I think if you just start off with, did you get through without ruining your own day? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If yeah. you, if you came out of it feeling like your day is ruined, I, that should be the point. Like, Hey, what, why was this such a bad day? Was it, was it a whole, was every, was there a bunch of bad things or was it just one thing that just made it a bad day for you? Because if it's one thing. That's you not coping. That's you not coping. Yeah. Well, sometimes in in defense, though, sometimes that one thing is pretty damn big. So that's exactly where you got to recognize, right? Though. Yeah. So then, it's emotional intelligence kind of wrapped into how we manage ourselves and how we how we cope with uh with all of our stress and all that other stuff. Um, then the last part of this is, um, 
how do we manage our our own self or our own self-care in the moment so how do we protect ourselves how do we build resist uh, resilience that's a big you know the big one of the big taglines oh that's tough because it's a dynamic environment well like on a call you mean on a call or in a stressful meeting or whatever it is wherever you are is this something that you can try to initiate for yourself in the moment so that you're kind of building a resistance or minimizing your exposure um i think one of the easiest things that i can do is just take some deep breaths without looking like i'm about to kill someone okay you have to learn how to do the deep breaths without it look like yeah you really it, need that neutral you know I mean? look you gotta you practice that in look. the mirror <laughs> you know in the mirror yeah. because you you can have that like i i people have told me that i i have a face that just you can tell portrays when you're mad. hatred yeah. and just loathing and i really try to work on that natural kind of neutral look yeah like i have rbf you sure. do it's i do impressive. it's bad. like it's not even like that's not even a comment where i'm like oh you have rbf i'm like i'm no. actually really impressed girl like and that's girl. and that's me girl. like when you see me and i'm looking like that like that is me feeling great <laughs> okay like that's me having a fantastic day if you see me and i look like i'm gonna shoot lasers through your soul that's when you know i'm probably a little annoyed one of the things, I started, listen, one of the things that i've started to do like in my places people say to me like you're so serious you are you're always so serious something's always bothering you what's going on and it really was my rbf yeah. and i'm like you know what just smile just smile at somebody, even if, even if it's fake. Even, even if my, you don't think, of it, just I like, feel like my smile. Hey, how you doing? Like, like I'm about to murder you. Yeah, but <laughs> I don't know but it, but you, it's not you. It's, it's the not. other people. You're not doing it it's for you. You're doing perceive. it for them because you're mm-hmm. like, if I'm walking through and I'm focused on something and I've got my head down and I'm doing things, you know, you think you're getting shit done, mm-hmm. and, and everyone's like, they're man, like, oh, he's such they're a, stomping around like oh, he's such a, oh, he's such a dick. I don't I like that guy. Around you know? like a little finger puppet, right? So like when everyone's mm-hmm. like, you're Maybe looking too serious. Like I'm not little. that serious. I'm not that serious. Ding, ding, ding. I'm not that. That's a good idea. Danito. Danny. Yeah. Danito. I've also resorted to um, like kind of singing to myself, like humming to myself as I do menial tasks at work, and it makes me a little more approachable. So even though I look like I'm gonna kill someone, at least you hear me singing. Right. <laughs> so She's so humming "Raining, Raining Blood" so the by Slayer. Yeah. Tune when just, they go to <laughs> just for a little perspective. <laughs> Jess is approximately four feet eleven inches yeah. tall. Oh uh, yeah. So that is a little bundle of anger you're looking at that may or may not be actually angry. Yeah, and it's it's always a toss up because <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it no, it is. It's a toss up because you don't know because my RBF is very strong and on point at all times, and then if you approach me, I'll immediately smile. But it's oh, but. <laughs> It's when <laughs> you approach me and then I don't smile. That's how you know. There's uh, an issue. I don't know. There's been times where you've been smiling and you're looking at me and my insides hurt. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Uh, the relationship podcast is <laughs> down the hall to the left. So I think I'm going to take a alternative point on this. I don't think you can build resilience. Um, I kind of think you have to recognize, um, for lack of a better word, how big your resilience tank is. I think there are things that will drain you and you have mm-hmm. to recognize what drains you fast. And I think you have to recognize, are you a very resilient person or are you not? Um, I think that's just something that's just intrinsic as your personality is. I don't think you can do ne- something necessarily to build your resilience. That being said, I think you can do stuff to prevent yourself from draining fast. Um, just as if you're going to a cardiac arrest call, you know, you're going, you're mentally preparing. Okay. I'm going to do the airway. My partner's going to put on the defibrillation pads. Um, the other things that you forget to think about, like the psychological and social stuff, who's going to talk to the family, who's going to be the one to say like, 
okay, this is what's going on. Your family member's dead. We're doing this right now. Who's going to be doing scene control? Who's going to be doing crowd control? Those are stuff that you can do. That's stuff you can do to help reduce your resilience uh, leaking out, so to speak. You made resilience sound very sticky. Like a, like a fine goo. It's a oh, it's fine viscous. goo. It's All right. I'm actually going to disagree. I think you can build resilience. Maybe what you look as resilience management or your you know that tank. I think you can actually build resilience just by gaining experience where something might affect you more deeply as a newer paramedic seeing it before you'll be ready to deal with it again because you'll know you already know how it's affected you and knowing how it how it's affected you you can prepare to combat that again that in my opinion is building resistance so i think you can build resistance if you know you're building resistance so you if, say you're going to that cardiac arrest or better yet we'll make it something a little more sure you're going to a pediatric cardiac arrest it's your first one, that's going to hit you hard. If it's like your third one and you've dealt with it before and you recognize that it affected you, you know how to mentally prepare yourself for the, what the scene's going to hold. Screaming parents, chaos, just people running around like chickens with their head cut off as we've seen. Dogs and cats living D- together. Mass hysteria. Dogs and cats, yeah. how they're supposed to. They're going to be chasing each other over the place to be a bloodbath. But it's <laughs> if you can prepare it's yourself for the stress so that's going to happen on your way there, you can better combat the ongoing stress of the job as it comes and then thus better deal with it afterward. So you'll be a little stronger going into the post-fight rather than getting your ass kicked all the way through and then being completely drained. So. Yeah. I agree with that. I think the other thing that's difficult to manage is the dynamic nature of the job, like Dan mm-hmm. was saying. Mm-hmm. And for me, as far as managing that, I always recount in my head what I've done and what I should be doing to do the job. So if the scene's going crazy, I feel like I'm about to lose it. I lose myself in the minutia of the job. Okay. Is the airway controlled? Yes. How am I controlling it? I have the patient on 15 liters non-rebreather. How's the breathing? The breathing's well controlled. How's the circulation? Yada, yada, yada. And I'll do that in my head to make sure... I know I'm about to lose focus because mm-hmm. I feel like I'm about to lose my shit, mm-hmm. but I know I'm keeping my stuff on the patient right now. So then now, essentially so. It is, it's, it's, it's possible, even if you're not building resilience actively, this is something you can do in a passive fashion. Right. Just yeah. make sure at least that you're kind of like staying on tasks, so to speak. Right. Yeah, so, I did that. I, I think that helped with me was when, you know, you're, you're struggling with stuff or things are bothering you on calls. I, I would just delve into, okay. Oh, what's my stuff set at? Oh, how's my landmarks? Oh, how's this going? Yeah. And and I'd really find the little stuff like, oh, is that doing okay? You know, is that doing okay? And people will stay away from you because they're like, oh, he's busy. He's really focused. <laughs> and I'm like, yes. Yeah, it's so, true. So when it comes down to, you know, we've, we've gotten to the point where, you know, self-care is what it is. It's working or it's not working, whatever it is. When we have to ask for help. Mm. There's obviously, and we wouldn't be having this podcast if there wasn't one, there is a stigma in EMS about being that person that goes and says, I'm not okay. How do you think that that difference between EMS, PD, and fire? I don't think there is a big difference between PD, EMS, and fire. There's no difference. There there, okay. there, I don't really don't think there is because uh, we have this very strange culture amongst these three professions where asking for help is considered a sign of weakness mm-hmm. and saying because a job bothered you, a fire bothered you, a call bothered you makes it sound like you're unfit for the job because you can't handle the stressors that come with the badge or whatever you know you want to say. The truth is it affects everybody. I don't care who you are. I don't care which one of these three professions or any profession you're in for that matter. Any service profession, you're going to find yourself stressed by dealing with people at their worst. Mm-hmm. It's just who we are as animals. It's part of our social structures, part of our social evolution to feel for other humans. When you don't, those are mentally 
disturbed individuals. Right. But I don't think there's any difference in terms of the stigma that comes with mental illness between these three professions. So in EMS, we address the mental stigma as being you're the, not the one to work with. Right. But in at least in police and in fire, there's a chance for a break or there's a mandatory uh, intervention that happens. Is that something that we can do here? We've, we've talked about it in a previous podcast where like the police, if you fire a gun, you have to be spoken to in fire. You have the ability to come out of service. Someone has your back and you can change your clothes. There should be some preset calls, I think, that should really at least give you the opportunity. So a pediatric cardiac arrest, a drowning, um, a violent crime scene that you end up being on. Uh, those should be easy, easy to find markers for your management or your, your system to be like, hey, so... I know you're saying you're okay, but we should have you do a debriefing. You should do mm-hmm. an in-depth debriefing with some, a third-party person who wasn't there and just get it off your chest now because now's the time. Like, mm-hmm. you got to debrief. Right, and it's got to be free. I think the biggest thing, too, is free of stigmatization. You know, just if you're going to do this and they say something, it should not be held against them. Right, yeah. You know, and, and it does. You know, yeah. you're a cop. You don't want to say that something bothered you because, you know, everybody's afraid of being on the rubber gun squad. That was an right. actual term for it. It's like you get your gun taken away and they give you a rubber one and you sit in the office and we can't trust you to really be anything. Right. That's a big, big, terrifying it's a hit to the ego. thing. Oh, it's more than a hit to the ego. It's every aspect of your life. It's, mm. it's just damaging. To me, it's a lot more aggravating in EMS because we're medically trained. And what I like to tell patients is if you had a pneumonia, you would treat that with medication. You would go to a doctor, right? You wouldn't just walk around with pneumonia for the rest of your life or wait till the pneumonia got so worse. You needed to go to the hospital. Similarly, if you have a mental health issue, think of it like a pneumonia of the brain or a viral illness of the brain or something of the brain. You would go to a doctor or you go to a professional and get that dealt with. Maybe you need medication. Maybe you need therapy. You need some sort of intervention. Mm -hmm. And I think it just frustrates me a lot that we as EMS providers, trained medical professionals, still stigmatize one another with that when we know for certain it is an organic cause most of the time right. for those things. It's not just, oh, so-and-so is crazy. Did you hear, you know, they tried to kill themselves or they did something. They're nuts. I'm not going to work with them. Like, what are you even talking about? Mm-hmm. Like, it just frustrates me so much that w- the knowledge is there. We know about it. We tell patients. I've heard people tell patients, oh, what I just said. And yet they'll go turn around and say, so-and-so is crazy to do here. They have to do this and that. It's like, right. and it I fosters, know, are you that hypocritical? Yeah. Well, it is hypocritical. And we foster that mentality that it's better to be unfit but good to work with instead of being, you know, out as someone who has a mental a mental problem or a mental trauma. Um, and therefore, you know, is it better for us to be, um, you know, unfit and, neuro- and quiet about it? Or is it better for our, for our fellow, you know, coworkers or our friends or whatever to watch out for what we're going to do? Option two. For most of our most of, most of the departments, most of our professions, it's better for you to be completely damaged, functional, but pretending to function because it doesn't make everybody else think about, oh boy, I'm just a step away, aren't I? Yeah, it's I uncomfortable. I would say that unl- unless it's your partner and you trust your partner. Like yeah. I, I feel yeah. like it depends on your partnership. Like when Kevin and I were partners, I feel like I could be 100% honest mm-hmm. with him and I would have trust him to like know, like let's say I had a hypothetical mental issue that I'd say like, look, this is my issue. And I'm sure he would have talked about it because we're practically married anyway. You're basically but, married. You are married. <laughs> <laughs> but to the point that he would recognize like, okay, I know this is a stressor for Mike. This may exacerbate his mental issue. 
let me try and jump in before something gets out of hand or let me recognize him deteriorating so I can help him, you know, just being a good friend and partner. I think that's, I think another big part of that is you don't even have to, if you're, if you have somebody you trust, whether it's uh, your wife or husband, you're a loved one, your partner at work, your good friend, generally speaking, they're going to look at you and know something's up Mm -hmm. and, it's up to you to be forthcoming be like, listen, I need to talk to somebody about this. Like, are you willing to listen? And, you know, part of big part of self care is knowing when you can't care for yourself anymore. and You have to ask for help. So, you know, again, when Mike and I were partners, even when Anna and I were partners, like one would come in like, Hey, you looks like something's wrong. Is everything okay. And mm-hmm. then one of us would vent to the other about what happened and we talk about it. And then usually that's enough to get through whatever it is. And we go about our shift. It, it Part of self-care is, I really think, recognizing no when you can't care for yourself anymore. Okay. Yeah. I would so, say so. So typically when I have uh, a partner, even I don't care if they're if they're new with me or they're whatever it is, if we're going to be together for a decent amount of time, um, I tend to try to remove that stigma from the truck as it is. I was diagnosed with cyclical depression. I have cycles where I will come in and I'm fine, and there are days where I had to force myself to shower and eat. So I think at that point, it's only fair for someone to understand where I would be coming from anyway. So even if I don't know that person, my job as someone who has a mental illness is to destigmatize it as much as possible. Is that something you guys agree with? Definitely. Think, yes. Absolutely brilliant, actually. I think that's a really good idea. We always joke about like a partner coming on. They tell you like way too much information. They give you your life story your first night together. Like, oh, you know, my kids play soccer for blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Do they? <laughs> Do they really? Oh, Dan, you have <laughs> no idea. I know I, more about coworkers than I should ever know. I, yeah, and it's, yeah. It's, it's stupid, mundane stuff. Like I would much more appreciate if my <laughs> partner came in who I'd never worked with before and came in and say, "Listen, we're going to be partners going into the future. Here's what you need to know about me. You don't need to know my kids' names. You don't need right, right away anyway. Mm-hmm. You don't need to know like what town I live in. But here's what you got to know about me as a person and as a mental health issue. That should be something that should be right up in front. So that way your partner knows like, hey, this is going on. But ah. I already know what this is. I can still trust this person. They're not losing their mind right in the middle of a job. Mm -hmm. And imagine if we did that with every single one of our partners. I think it would just empower us more because then we would realize how many other people we work with have these issues. And we wouldn't feel alone in it. So you check the truck, sign the NARCs. Reveal to each other your, your exactly. tell, tell each other which we medications have, you're on. Right. <laughs> we have four automatate. I happen to be all Wellbutrin. Just uh, so oh, you know. you're all Wellbutrin. I take Lexapro. Yeah. Right. Great to meet you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was going to say compare your SSRIs. Yes. Like, oh yeah, this one's really great. And so I, to go along with like I know we're joking about which here's SSRIs the funny part, guys. Take. Everybody's on at least one. I yeah. think yeah. Deal I, that's what I should we say. All, I think we all do. Right? Us us in EMS like, like it, it almost. Listen, us. you have enough experience. At some point, you might either need it you're going to develop depression anxiety um it's really 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 smart of you to keep an eye on your own moods as you progress through this career yeah anybody a lot listening of, a lot of looking to get in the the misconception that like being on a pill fixes you and it's not no. that like no though the, the, the medication that i'm on has made me more aware of my cycle it instead of you. right and it, may, it, may, it gives me to it gets me to a point where I know what's coming and I know how to fix it. It's right. It my mind's giving me functionality where I get lost in my own thoughts. It's allowed me to calm the storm so I can function. Right. So I think the next point that I kind of want to bring up here is that even if you are s- dealing with something, and this is one of those stigma points where you know a lot of people aren't asking for help because they assume that something bad is going to happen. You cannot be fired or or dismissed 
for having for asking for mental help or substance abuse help that's just it's it's a federal mandate they have to provide you with some kind of intervention you all you have to say is that you need help um the second part of that is that a service can ask you to psych in again uh once you've been you know out and and treated and that kind of thing um after a time of absence or whatever it is uh, but they can't deter you from coming back to work if you're cleared. So if you have been in a, um, a rehab or you have been in an inpatient facility and your official people, doctors, lawyers, whoever else says that you are fit for duty again, your agency is not allowed to turn around and say, well, you were in substance recovery. We're not going to let you work here again. So let's dismiss that myth right off the back. The last part of this is going to be the social aspect of what you do after you come back post-treatment or post-psych. Is this something that you absolutely have to breach with your partner? Although I do it voluntarily, which is fine. But is it something that you're obligated to talk about? Obligate? No. You're not obligated to talk about anything about you're yourself. Not o- right. You're not obligated, but you might find that by doing that, by by extending yourself and sharing a little bit, yeah, you're going to have some jerks who are going to give you, a, you know, kind of roll their eyes at you. But you might find that it that it's very liberating. Yeah, yeah. And it's very calming because you're not the person that you're not in a panic all the time worried. Mm-hmm. If well, you're releasing you're trying to hide find it. it. You're releasing yourself from the stigma by admitting you have it. Mm-hmm. Right. So yep. you you kind of take it and you turn it into your own armor rather than you know a flaw in your armor. You make it your armor. So you're telling your partner ahead of time, yeah, it may be uncomfortable. It may not even be like considered like proper etiquette for new partners. Who cares? Mm-hmm. It's a good thing to get out up front. And if you have the the guts to do it, I say do it. I think if you explain it to people and they give you a negative answer, just drop them, screw them. Yeah. In, in yeah. my opinion, and I think that's something that you should expect. And I would hope that your psychiatrist or psychologist would, would talk to you with before you return to work because. You know, the unfortunate reality is there is still a stigma with it and it's going to be here for a while. And some people will understand and some people just won't. Mm-hmm. And I think as, as long as you understand that, you know, just be strong in yourself and know that ultimately at the end of the day, you have to take care of yourself and you do it for you. So you don't do it because, you know, you fear what your coworkers may think. I don't know. And, and there's always better places out there. Like if you feel that the place you're at is not supporting you or your coworkers all of a sudden don't think right of you, then go somewhere else where people are, are better and do better do better do better okay that's where we're gonna end it okay All right. so uh thanks everybody um and again if you're out there and if you're struggling don't feel like you're alone there's plenty of us in, there's plenty of us standing right there too so um you know this is something we're going to continue to to touch on it's unpleasant it's scary sometimes but it needs to we need to have this discussion so we're going to keep having it um, so that's about it for us today. Um, again, you know, tell us what you think, uh, hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, uh, at overrun EMS, uh, Instagram overrun productions, uh, go to iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio. I always mess this up. Stitcher, <laughs> <laughs> Google play, you know, all the podcast sites. Uh, so for the overrun on Dan, I'm Anna, I'm Jess, I'm Kevin and I'm Mike. Thanks for being with us. Get home safe.